0: You are now listening to MacroDose. Hello and welcome to MacroDose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll be looking at the strikes that are spreading across the UK, from the railways to the teachers to nurses and oil workers. First, we'll look at the economics of the strikes themselves. And then in part two, we'll put this movement into a historical perspective, because it helps show the real importance of what's happening away from the media hype. And finally, for our third story of the week, we'll reflect on the UK's worsening energy crisis and how record levels of debts could push households over the edge this winter. On to our first story today, the sudden upsurge in workers taking industrial action. Uh, Sixth-form teachers are due to walk out this morning. Further Royal Mail strikes are planned, and perhaps most notoriously, the rail unions are planning further action, and for the first time in its history, the Royal College of Nursing has called for strikes at the end of December, potentially joining other health workers who are currently balloting uh, for strike action. Now, underneath the headline-grabbing national strikes, there have been a flourishing of smaller disputes, often in the private sector, which, crucially, have been winning victory Lorry drivers up and down the country have been winning double-digit pay awards. Local council workers, like bin workers, have been winning similar local victories. In some cases, the strikes and industrial action have been taking place without workers first going through the hugely complicated legal process that has been put in place over many years that you're supposed to fulfil and tick all the boxes and make sure you ballot legally and have everything counted uh, officially before you're allowed to go on strike. It's been put in place, essentially, to make going on strike really quite difficult. But there's been a number of workers not bothering with that. Oil workers uh, over the summer staging a series of so-called wildcat strikes. Also in a crucial, I think, breakthrough, uh, workers at multiple Amazon warehouses, uh, and this is a company that's notoriously anti-union, not just in the UK, but across the world, uh, workers staging sit-down protests at these delivery centres over the kind of derisory pay offers that the company had been making. So let's be quite clear about the economics of this. The starting point is that real wages in Britain have been low and even falling for much of the last decade. Uh, A small recovery in pay over 2019, so pay rising faster than uh, inflation at the time uh, and then carrying on into the pandemic, has been, for the most part, wiped out by inflation over the past 12 months or so. It's completely reasonable for workers to take industrial action and to strike under those circumstances. People are being made poorer. It's not unreasonable for them to turn around and say they want to do something about it. What's... interesting now is that they're starting to have the capacity to do something about it. But that's the situation for people who work. On the other side of industry, it's been pretty much exactly the opposite picture. So in the six months from October 2021 to April 2022, so this last period when we have good figures, corporate profits in Britain are up uh, 11.7%. And that's on top of what's been a bonanza few years with large companies in particular, uh, with the pandemic and its immediate aftermath, seeing Britain's largest 350 listed companies increase their profit margins by 73%. And of course, the profits of certain parts of the economy, notably those businesses able to exploit the disruption and chaos in essential supplies over the last few years, like, for instance, oil producers and gas producers, profits have been at truly record-breaking levels. This has been happening exactly the same time that most of us have seen the tightest squeeze in our wallets for for many generations. Probably, really, in terms of how much poorer we're being made, really, since the early years of the Industrial Revolution. The wages we're getting paid, typically have not been increasing as quickly as prices of essentials like natural gas, so used for heating, electricity, or food, which obviously you eat, where prices have risen uh, 14% over last year and, and could go up still further over the next year as, as the rather dire situation on harvests becomes apparent. So there's a simple logic to, to what's happening here. If you're being paid the same, but the prices of most of the things you have to buy have gone up, someone somewhere is going to be making more profit. That's the difference between your wages and what you're having to pay that's increased for the things that you can't avoid buying, food, energy, this sort of thing. It's not that companies have suddenly become more greedy in the wake of COVID. It's more that the disruptions to the basic systems of economic life that COVID occasioned has given an opportunity for particularly large companies and particularly those selling essential goods and services to exploit the situation. If you then throw in the kind of environmental chaos we've seen in the last few years, extreme weather uh, right across the world, harvests failing, difficulties in transporting goods, and now, of course, the military crisis, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, then supplies disrupted everywhere right away across the world translates easily into rising prices and therefore into much, much higher profits for at least some companies. Doesn't really apply to every business. If you're running a pub or a restaurant where COVID lockdowns have forced you to close or restrictions since the big lockdowns have knocked your uh, revenue stream, your takings are are really down, suddenly you turn around and find that you've got this astronomical energy bill, that that's easily enough to to push you out of business. And there's been dire warnings for some period of time over what this winter could mean for small businesses. So really what you're getting with this burst of inflation is a big transfer of income away from most people have to work to live and towards the people who own the stuff that. The people who have to work and the people who own small businesses need to survive in the modern world. The obvious solution is to reverse that flow of income from going upwards and instead turn it back down the income scale. So in other words, you want wages to increase, you want salaries to increase, you want benefits and pensions to increase. These are the things that people rely on as their income that isn't keeping up with prices as things stand. You very rarely hear it phrased like this. More well, usually, the problem of inflation is presented in the media and by establishment economists as exactly the opposite to a problem of excess profits. Instead, they will claim the problem is a wage price spiral, as discussed last week, and propose that interest rate rises are needed to act against it. This is completely wrong for reasons discussed. The wage price spiral doesn't exist and most workers simply don't really have the capacity to force through uh, massive pay rises onto their bosses. But that's why these strikes are so important. That's why what's happening now matters because it starts to look a bit like a shift from the pattern we've seen over decades in Britain where you have maybe one or two people going out and strike, one or two groups of workers every so often, into something that seems a bit more dynamic, that involves people potentially winning uh, when they go out and strike, rather than these big defensive battles to try and hold on to what people have. So the critical question here is whether this momentum that's being built up in the strikes we're seeing, the industrial action we're seeing, sustains itself over the winter and into what is being threatened as quite a serious recession over the next two years or so. For the second story today, I wanted to put what's happening into a bit of a historical perspective because I think it tells us about why what's taking place now is unusual compared to the experience actually of the last about four decades in Britain. Because for all the media fuss about a second winter of discontent uh, and the hot summer we were supposed to have over uh, this year, the actual numbers of people now on strike is nothing like that of the original winter of discontent over 1978-79. to Back then, official figures recorded about 11 million strike days taken. Uh, That's the official figures, unofficially. It would be a little bit higher than even that epic figure. Today, on the most recent figures, 360,000 strike days were taken in August. Now, this is more than at any point since 2014, but it's nothing remotely like the 1970s. Union membership last year, meanwhile, actually fell, as a share of the workforce, to the lowest level since modern records began in 1995. So about one-fifth of workers are in a union, very largely concentrated in the public sector. In fact, looking back, strikes have been very low in Britain for decades. There's a clear divide that happens in the 1990s. Before 1990, not a single year since the Second World War had less than 2 million strike days taken. After 1990, not a single year has had even 2 million strike days taken. Across great swathes of the economy, and especially for younger workers, unions today are non-existent. So what's happened instead, particularly coming out of the pandemic, is something quite unusual that what we saw in what got called the Great Resignation, if people remember, that suddenly the huge numbers of people were switching jobs as the economy reopened over 2021, summer 2021 in particular. That anecdotally, you could hear about people leaving one job in the morning and going off to find another one that afternoon that had better pay, particularly in sort of service sector jobs that traditionally don't have such strong unions. You know, think nightclub bouncers or people working in kitchens, things like this. It's very unusual to see that happening. What it means is that you have what economists call a tight labour market. In other words, there's more demand for at least some kinds of work out there than there are workers able to easily supply it. And the result of that is employers tend to have to try and offer more money to secure the people to do the work. There's a lot of reasons why this might be happening. Brexit, people talk about, it gets blamed for specific sectors, lorry drivers and a few others where potentially there's been a shortage of workers since leaving the European Union. But I think far more significant has been the huge increase in what gets called economic inactivity. In other words, of people, especially somewhat older workers, dropping out of the labour market. And this isn't particularly a positive story. This is the numbers of people reporting that they are long-term sick has risen by half a million since the pandemic from 2 million in 2019 to 2.5 million today. So that's half a million people fewer in the workforce than there used to be before the pandemic. And almost certainly a significant chunk of this will be due to uh, COVID itself. Uh, Long COVID as reported by increasing numbers of sufferers. Now this is miserable. This points to a, a real growing burden of ill health and poor life quality but it has the flip side it tightens labour markets and makes it easier, potentially, for people elsewhere to organise. And that, I think, is part of what we're seeing happening right away across the economy right now. That we have rising prices, which gives an incentive for people to try and organise, to ask for uh, those wage increases. And that you have tight labour markets, which gives the opportunity to try and ask for those uh, those pay rises. Put them together and you start to see that turn into the forms of collective action that you haven't seen in parts of the economy that haven't seen them for a very long time, if ever in the case of Amazon warehouses. So time for our final story today, the energy crisis. Strikes and pay rises, if you win them, may help pull some of the super profits of inflation back into the hands of workers. But with pay for most lagging so far behind the rising prices of essentials, there are already millions of households falling further and further into debt. On the latest figures, uh, 1.5 million people were repaying debts on their gas bill already before we hit uh, winter and the the demands for extra heating that are obviously going to turn up then. And this is the highest number since the financial crisis 15 years ago. Ahead of winter, total household energy debt has risen to £1.3 billion, a record level. This means households entering winter in an already vulnerable situation, particularly for those households with complex needs, like someone with a disability requiring attention and specific equipment that needs electricity. Although forecasts for the winter are currently quite mild, it wouldn't take an awful lot to knock a bunch of these households into suddenly finding that not only do they have existing debts that they're running to try and keep up with, they now have exceptional demands for payments to try and keep up with the cold weather. And this energy debt, of course, is arriving on top of other household debts, already also rising rapidly. Credit card debt has ballooned to the highest levels since records began 30 years ago. And high levels of debt like this leave households very vulnerable to even small shocks, financially vulnerable. So a cold winter or the worsening recession, the forecast, of course, is from the Bank of England, is for two years of recession ahead of us, which could see thousands of people pushed over the edge financially. The obvious solution might be to think in terms of an amnesty or a jubilee for those energy debts, writing off the amounts people owe to the privatised energy companies. Of course the privatised energy suppliers would hate this, Uh, industry figures already complaining to the Financial Times about how squeezed they have been, basically as their sort of rickety financialised business model has been caught between on one side rising wholesale energy prices that they have to pay internationally and their inability to pass those costs on to consumers. But this isn't a reason to fail to take action. It looks more like a reason to stop the ridiculous insistence that the supply and distribution of an essential like energy should be left to the whims of a privatised system. We've already seen one energy supplier, Bulb, nationalise. We may find even this government has to bring more back into public ownership before the energy crisis is over. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose. And finally, Macrodose is happy to be a partner of the Politics Theory Other podcast. You can find our show as well as many fantastic long-form interviews with Grace Blakely, Nancy Fraser, and many more by searching Politics Theory Other wherever you get your podcasts.